The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Scorebox. Here are your headlines today. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken holds candid and constructive talks with his Chinese counterpart in Beijing in the first visit by an American cabinet-level official since before the pandemic. Goldman Sachs becomes the latest investment bank to go bearish on China, lowering its four-year GDP forecast, citing limited options to boost stimulus. Asian equities start the week on the back foot despite their best weekly run in five months as hopes for more stimulus in China fail to put a floor under equities. AstraZeneca reportedly draws up plans to spin off its China business and list separately in Hong Kong or Shanghai as the pharma giant seeks shelter from growing geopolitical tensions. And the Paris Air Show returns after a four-year pandemic grounding with Airbus and Boeing battling it out to win new orders as global demand recovers. We're live on the tarmac with a host of top names all morning. Morning, all. Juliana around the set with me this morning. A busy old week of geopolitics by the looks of it to start up with. It certainly is. Well, it's wonderful to be here with you this morning. I think we'll be together a little bit this week. Yeah, thank you for joining me. Now, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met top Chinese diplomat Wang Yi this morning on the second day of his visit to the country. It is the first time a U.S. Secretary of State has visited China in five years. Blinken held more than seven hours of what he called candid and constructive talks with China's foreign minister on Sunday, the focus on easing tensions between the world's two largest economies. Meanwhile, Goldman Sachs is the latest bank to cut its growth outlook for the Chinese economy, trimming its GDP forecast by 0.6 percentage points to 5.4% for this year. The move comes after a swathe of other banks did the same amid signs that the country's recovery is hitting a roadblock expectations growing for further policy loosening from the PBOC. And let's get out to Sam for more. Sam, there seems to be a connection here. The economy is not uh, facing the reopening that many had hoped for. At the same time, geopolitics have become extremely challenging here. One commentator was saying, look, this is a reconnection, not a detente, that effectively we're trying to just make sure the situation doesn't worsen from here. So just spell out how the Chinese feel about the situation. Good morning to you, Karen. There's certainly been a lot of suggestions in terms of the considerations for why China is wanting to re-engage at this time. As you pointed out, we do have this situation where China is facing a slowing economy and there has been a lot of reassurance, certainly for the private sector and foreign companies, that, hey, look, we're open for business. But really, we have seen that US businesses in particular have been particularly worried about the situation over in China recently, despite the fact that we've had this flurry of CEOs over in the country. And the other consideration is perhaps because uh, President Xi Jinping uh, is wanting to perhaps head over to the APEC summit in November in San Francisco. And that is where uh, there is a lot of talk about a potential meeting with Biden on the sidelines of that. So there is a lot of suggestion that this is really building up to that. As you mentioned, the talks were described by both sides. It was consistent language of candid and constructive discussions. It's interesting 
interesting when you look at both of the readouts from Washington and also Beijing from the foreign ministry, both do paint the discussions in a largely positive light that, of course, they did have some good discussions around more in-person engagements when you talk about students and also businesses and scholars and also increasing flights between the two sides. But there weren't really any specific details, you could say, about some of the flashpoints, some of the nitty-gritty details in this relationship um, that uh, are of massive concern with regards to trade and also technology and, and human rights, at least on the US's part. We know that that's a big worry. What we did see, though, was China reiterating its stance on Taiwan, which is hardly surprising because China does feel at this time that there are signs certainly coming from the US that they are perhaps crossing China's so-called red line. And so there was a warning about abiding by the one China policy and also not supporting Taiwan uh, independence as well. Uh, the US side, they got a chance to hammer out their concerns as well. Uh, but really, this is being seen as just an opportunity, a chance for these two sides to talk now and to avoid conflict and hopefully pave the way uh, for more targeted discussions around economics and trade with the likes of Yellen and also Gina Raimondo, ladies. Sam, we've had Goldman Sachs joining the list of banks now cutting their expectations around China's growth story, but it was fascinating to see what some of the big financial firms are doing. They're concerned about austerity, how their workers are being perceived as uh, some across the country, particularly young people, are seeing their employment prospects disintegrate, that very high unemployment rate above, what, 20-odd percent for the youth uh, demographic. Now we've seen financial firms saying, do not wear expensive clothes to work or don't wear watches that are from luxury firms. This could have significant fallout for some of the big luxury names across Europe if we are thinking that there could be a cutback on the amount of spending or largesse from some of the Chinese. Well, we know, Karen, that at the moment there is this trend in China where people are trading down. And we've seen that in the retail sales that haven't been as good as perhaps the government would like them to be at a time when they are relying on the Chinese consumer to mitigate some of that softer export growth. You had as you mentioned, the downgrade we've got from Goldman Sachs, and they were citing the, the property sector uh, and also what they say is a confidence deficit. They are talking about this tug of war playing out between the disappointing data we've seen in terms of the economy not performing as well as perhaps the government or the market was expecting at the same time where you've seen this stepped up easing across the country. And so now we're hearing a lot of talk about more stimulus measures to target areas of the economy that very much need it the most, areas like the property sector and also consumption. And this is something that the markets are watching very closely. The next thing to watch, of course, is the loan prime rate fixing tomorrow because, of course, the MLF rate was given a haircut last week and that typically acts as a guide for those benchmark lending rates. Ladies, back to you in London. Sam, thank you very much for that. Uh, just going to circle back to the story from the luxury perspective here in Europe. I mean, this has been an area that investors have been looking at, of course, around these stocks. But I mean, it's very common to go into some of the major designers here in, in London 
and for Chinese customers to say, I want this, 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 and this, and this, and have a whole bundle of purchases to take back home. Now to have the message, if you're in a certain area of the economy, do not show it off, do not snap a photo of that. I mean, you think in the West, people take a photo of, they have a very expensive lunch in front of them or a handbag purchase. This all gets snapped and put onto the likes of Instagram. It's big business in China too, and there are a lot of influencers that work on the back of, you know, selling these types of products. Hey, that would certainly change the um, the appeal of these luxury products if you're encouraged not to show them off. I mean, what's the point of having one if you're not <laughs> not going to show it off? I mean, coming back to the the broader China economic story, you raised the downgrades that came through over the weekend from Goldman Sachs, downgrading their GDP forecast for China six percent down to five point four percent. That's a pretty robust downgrade, um, and they're not the only ones to do. So uh, it seems like the debate right now, after Goldman, Bank of America, UBS, JP Morgan all cut their China growth forecasts, is the extent to which more policy support from China will offset some of the downturn that is causing these downgrades. Yeah, no easy fix has been the, the terminology that Goldman's came up with, and I think this is the issue. We keep debating, and every time we you know, run into someone that's been big in and out of China over the last decade or so, you say is this time uh, different, or do you see Chinese authorities step in with large-scale stimulus? And the view is that, look, they're just going to exacerbate some of the structural issues. They've already got a huge debt issue, particularly around some of the local government financing arms. And if you start doing the same old thing, let's build another bridge or road to somewhere that you could put further cracks in the economy. The property market, as we can see, is already under enormous stress. Mm. Do you want to fuel that? Do you want to see the fresh speculation come back in? Or is it actually a good thing to take some of that heat out of the property market and cool things down from here? Well, it's certainly what China, the Chinese authorities have been trying to do, not offer this flood-like stimulus, but only offer targeted stimulus. But if that's the way they continue, then uh, it, it doesn't look like China is going to be a big boon to growth globally then. Yeah, that's the thing. And it's a big one for the rest of us, for a lot of the European economies as well, just what China does from here. But you can find out more on why banks are lowering their expectations for the Chinese economy on our website, CNBC. Com, of course. Now, the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz will meet his Chinese counterpart, Premier Li Chang, and a number of Chinese trade delegates in Berlin today. It's the first such meeting since the pandemic began and comes as Berlin promises to maintain good ties with its biggest trading partner, but after the G7 pledge to de-risk from China. Premier Li will meet the German President, Frank-Walter Steinmeier, before visiting the Chancellery. The Italian government has ruled that Pirelli's top investor, Sinochem, cannot choose a CEO despite holding a 37% stake in the tire maker's business and being the main shareholder. The move is part of the plan, a plan to protect the autonomy of Pirelli and its management. Sinochem will be able to pick no more than eight members of Pirelli's 15-person board. Now, elsewhere in corporate China-related news, AstraZeneca is reportedly planning to spin off its China business. That's according to the Financial Times, which says the drug maker is considering a number of options, including a separate listing in either Hong Kong or Shanghai. The move could protect the company from tensions between China and other Western nations. Um, Karen, this story really jumped out. One of our producers flagged it this morning, and it really jumped out to me because covering AstraZeneca over a number of years, as you'll know very well, China has been a huge strategic focus for AstraZeneca. Um, and the, I think the key takeaway from this story that's being reported by the FT is not that they're pulling back from China or disengaging in any way, but that they're considering a separate listing. They'd maintain control of the separate listing, so not 
not a pullback from China, but clearly an acknowledgement that the situation may be coming a little bit too difficult to continue operating the way they are. Just to put this on the timeline, it's been in discussion for a number of years. So clearly the company has witnessed uh, certain issues across the business, whether that's regulatory hurdles that they've faced, whether they have been concerned about the geopolitics or whether they're seeing something different in terms of the Chinese trends, in terms of what policymakers are prepared to spend on healthcare versus elsewhere. And of course, uh, one of the big issues has been the use of data sets and uh, the information you can gather using a very different regulatory environment there. And this was a discussion I've had with some players that, you know, you can gather more information on healthcare, use AI and have very different outcomes. Mm. I mean, some of this not permitted in the West and do wonder whether healthcare is going in a different direction in China that is not permissible in Western countries. Mm. So just one thought. And, you know, regulatory hurdles too have been cited. Have they seen issues now because of the geopolitics in terms of the approval process of certain clinical trials and drugs? Uh, has that been an issue? Just, you know, question mark, question mark, and would that change? But ultimately, the company is saying this may not lead to the outcome being discussed here. It's something the bankers have been exploring, and no doubt the bankers will get a fee on the back of this. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, let's just see. And obviously, Blinken is on the ground trying to improve relations with the West. If there was some change in narrative, would the company pull back? Is it really the geopolitics that has been the, the final straw that breaks the camel's back mm. that wants them to get into some sort of a, a separate entity? That's such an interesting angle about the AI piece and, and how data is treated differently there. Almost like that is a draw, a pull for AstraZeneca to separate the entity, a reason for them to do it. That's a pull rather than a push, you know, push a push to separate because they're trying to avoid the um, any sort of geopolitical tensions and geopolitical impact that might come with having a foreign business operating in China. So interesting to think that they might be drawn because of that incentive, actually. It's just one factor. What concerns me, though, and we've been talking a lot about deglobalization, decoupling, is that if other multinationals, other multinationals, which has been cited in the report, are also considering the same thing, and the FT has been drawing up a terrific piece on this, because if you think about the globalization of companies, very big multinationals, the reason why you hold them in a portfolio is that you spread your risk by geography, you have diversification in a portfolio. If we're talking about massive companies now splitting out entities around China, how do you have the China element that gives you that extra growth story typically over time? Do you have to then find single name exposures in China yeah. to try and have that growth profile? So the multinational is not doing what it should be doing in your yeah. portfolio, which is a bigger risk for pension funds, for, for large uh, companies yeah. with uh, you know large funds to invest. And there's a huge opportunity in China for AstraZeneca. I mean, massive. Right, so far, they've been looking, using their, their old medicines and respiratory um, issues, asthma, but the, the opportunity to use some of the more innovative medicines is huge as well. So a really interesting angle. We'll see if it comes to fruition. Um, we are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking sterling, the British pound notching its best week in six months. But what can we expect from the BOE this week? We'll discuss next. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back to Squawk Box. Let's get a check on the market action 
on Friday to see how things closed up. We had red across the board for Wall Street. All three of the majors closed lower. The tech heavy Nasdaq lost about 0.7%. S&P pulled back about four tenths and the Dow Jones lost about 100 points or so. For the week though, all three of the majors advanced higher. We had some decent gains. Nasdaq gaining three and a quarter percent, the best weekly performance for that index since the end of March. S&P 500 gained about 2.6% and the Dow Jones had its third positive week in a row, gaining about one and a quarter percent. So overall a strong week, even though we had a bit of a soggy end to trade. Of course, today uh, you, you are probably well aware, but U.S. markets will be closed as Americans observe Juneteenth. Turning to FX markets, here's a picture for currencies this week as sterling comes sharply into focus. Right now it is holding steady versus the dollar, but look at how far we've climbed. We're back above 128 versus the dollar. Uh, as for the euro, no change this morning. Dollar yen uh, is trading a little bit weaker, 141.55, and the dollar is holding firm versus the Chinese yuan at around 7 in terms of commodity markets, we saw oil gain last week, as did natural gas. This morning, we are seeing a bit of a retreat. Brent crude down 1.3%, WTI down about 1.4% to just over $70 a barrel. Gold, meanwhile, the safe haven holding steady around 1956. Let's get a check on Asian markets and the overnight trade, especially given the downgrade over the weekend from Goldman Sachs to their growth expectations for China. The Shanghai Composite in the mainland is down six tenths of a percent. The Hang Seng in Hong Kong underperforming down about 1.5 percent. Geopolitics firmly in focus there, as we were discussing before the break, with Anthony Blinking making his way around Beijing, meeting Chinese officials. The Nikkei 225 in Japan pulling back about 1.3 percent. What does it all mean for Europe? Opening calls this morning indicate we are in for a bit of a pullback as well. The Zetradax looking to open triple digits down, actually. Uh, the FTSE MIB also looking to open about 130 points lower. Uh, a bit of red on the board for the FTSE 100 and the CAC 40 as well at this early hour. Karen. Annual mortgage payments in the UK are set to rise by almost £3,000 next year. That is according to the independent British think tank Resolution Foundation, which says 1.6 million UK fixed rate mortgages are set to expire next year. It sees the average two-year fixed mortgage at 6.5% by the end of the year and above 4.5% for more than four years. Some of the UK's biggest lenders raised mortgage rates again last week after weak inflation data spurred expectations of another Bank of England rate hike this week. The sterling saw its biggest weekly rise against the US dollar in six months last week, up more than 1.7%, highest level we've had uh, so far this year, but also taking us back to the highest level really since uh, April 2022. Now, UK April employment and wage growth topped expectations, lifting bets the Bank of England will hike interest rates again at its monetary policy meeting this week. Pricing and derivatives market shows traders expect rates to reach 5.75% by the end of this year from 4.5%. Pleased to say uh, Thanos Vavakidis joins us again, Global Head of G10FX Strategy, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, Global Research. Thanos, thank you for joining us back on set. Good morning, Karen. Long gap between uh, conversations with you, but nice to see you in person. And let's get to the heart of what the Bank of England is going to do from here, because the picture is somewhat mixed. Some believe there are a series of rate hikes still to come from the central bank. Others believe we don't have that luxury here and that the issues will mean that growth will tail off and the central bank will find itself trapped in a range. I don't know if they will go as far as markets expect. Um, the market is pricing five more hikes. Definitely this week they have to hike. It's not just that it is fully priced, but the data uh, justifies it. The truth is that the labor market is very tight in the UK 
inflation in recent months has actually reaccelerated. The overall economy is weak, but has done better than expected. And therefore, the Bank of England has to keep going. Now, the macro picture is very difficult for them. And the more the hike, the more it is likely that they might push the UK economy into a recession. But really, they have no choice, given the inflation pressures and given that wages now are increasing. So you have strong second round effects already. Former Bank of England Governor Mark Carney has chosen his time in perfectly. Now, as other central banks are seemingly at the pause rate, you've got uh, this picture, as you spell out, around the rate hike story here still in the UK. Uh, Mark Carney saying, look, it's Brexit. I warned you. Uh, the political consequences were there, but I warned you that uh, there would be a negative supply shock. Is this Brexit? Are we seeing these extra issues now around inflation because of the, a Brexit shock? I think up to an extent this is the case. If we compare the UK with the other advanced uh, economies, they are closer to a stagflation scenarios, scenario and the bottlenecks in the labor market are more severe. Now, this could explain actually the more challenging macro environment in the UK, but it's not just Brexit because, again, other countries are facing with different, different, similar problems. So it's not only that the Bank of England has to continue fighting inflation pressures, it's the other central banks as well. And it seems that the advanced economies are converging towards a bar equilibrium in which core inflation, headline inflation and wages are all increasing at about 5 to 6%, well above the 2% target. So central banks have more to do, in particular in the UK, where inflation has actually started to increase again. It's hard to imagine if the UK uh, does push through uh, even four additional rate hikes this year that it's not going to have a devastating impact on the UK economy. And yet I see here that you've recently adjusted your GBP forecasts higher. Uh, what is the call? What makes you confident that sterling can go higher from here and that against that backdrop? Now, sterling has been the best performing currency so far in G10. There are a number of reasons. The market was too bearish, both on sterling and on the economic outlook. The Bank of England has been reprised a number of times this year to do more. The labor market is actually moving in the wrong direction. But there are also some positive developments. Relations with the EU have improved. There are no tail risks anymore of the UK pulling the plug on the existing deal. So some things are also moving in the right direction. There is no doubt that not only the Bank of England, other central banks looking forward will have challenges among their three mandates of price stability, financial stability and employment growth. But given that inflation is still multiple times above their targets, they have no choice but to keep it in their rates high or higher for longer or potentially much longer. Can I shift to the euro, the euro and the, the euro GBP and euro USD trade? How, hard, how high is the bar, do you think, for the ECB to pause in their rate hiking cycle? I think after last week, one or even two more hikes uh, is quite likely. Although finally core inflation in the eurozone has turned, it has been well above the ECB's forecast and obviously well above their target. And wages are also increasing now in the Eurozone, more or less at the core inflation rate. So most likely, of course, the ECB cannot keep hiking. But if they go to a terminal rate, 3.75 or even 4%, then they will have to keep it there for at least one or two more years. 
I want to ask you about the United States, a roller coaster for the dollar index so far this year. And if you think about that Friday trade, we had very strong sentiment on the equity side, biggest weekly gain since March, suggesting confidence has improved and there's some breadth coming back into the S&P 500. What does US dollar do under that context that there's more market support here and more confidence around US assets, but also potentially a pause with question marks around the rate story for the US? On the one hand, the dollar is weaker compared to the peak we reached last October, but back then was a perfect storm of negative shocks. But the dollar also remains historically strong and well above equilibrium. And the truth is that every month this year has been a different narrative. And the dollar crosses have been within a relatively tight range. Our view is that as long as inflation remains strong, the dollar will remain historically strong. To a large extent, it is an inflation call. Mm. And and keeping the U.S. dollar in focus, Goldman Sachs over the weekend said that they expect further weakness in the Chinese yuan versus the dollar because of rate differentials and because of what's happening in the Chinese economy. Anything in that trade in your view? That's quite likely. The truth is that the recovery in China has been weaker than expected. And it seems that the authorities are willing to let the currency weaken to support the economy. So most likely we may see further uh, weakness. Uh, at the yen, seven month low, we continue to see this directional trade for dollar yen rates. At what point do we see uh, some intervention by the Japanese? Not yet. It is different, I think, compared to last year because it, 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 because it, is, not given, um, it is not driven by speculation. It is driven by the BOJ sticking with unconventional policies, the only G10 central bank uh, to do so. Equities are doing relatively well. So we believe the bar is much would be on the other side, though, right? At this point, they'd be on the other side trying to... We started the year with actually the market being bearish dollar yen, expecting the Bank of Japan to change its policies, and they were forced to close this position. So actually, we may see further strength in dollar yen. Our target by September is 143, which is not that far from Mm. today's levels. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.